Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Edward Posnett will join us to discuss strange harvests. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Well, the natural world is full of many natural objects, but some that have often been overlooked. Well, joining us today to discuss some of these is Mr. Edward Posnett. Mr. Posnett uh, was born in London, worked in finance, and began writing about nature, markets, and trade. His fascination with the Icelandic tradition of Eiderdown harvesting led him to write Eiderdown, which was the winner of the Bodley Head Financial Times Essay Prize, and sparked his first book entitled Strange Harvests, The Hidden Histories of Seven Natural Objects. And Mr. Posnett, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, certainly our pleasure. Certainly a fascinating book you've written here, Strange Harvests, in which you talk about a number of natural objects, one that can teach us a lot about living sustainably with the world. I'm curious, why did you decide to write this book? I decided to write the book really because I fell in love with a particular story about a material called eiderdown, which you mentioned earlier, which is the lightweight down of of an eider duck. And eiders are, are very large sea ducks, which you find in Northern Europe and in North America as well, often quite close to the Arctic Circle. And the harvest of Eiderdown is really sort of extraordinary example of symbiosis and cooperation between the human and non-human worlds. What interested me about it is that most of the down and feathers that surround us come from, from dead ducks or dead birds. They're a byproduct of the meat industry. But Eiderdown, this particular down, is harvested in Iceland without harming the birds. And indeed, there's a case to be made that actually the harvest of this particular down has very much helped the species in Iceland in, in general. So I learned about this unique relationship, which I found absolutely intriguing and such a contrast from the sort of doom and gloom stories that surround us. And I wanted to find more stories as well, which touched a particular question of symbiosis. And your book uh, has seven of them. How did you uh, settle on these seven? So I have to say quite, quite arbitrary in the sense that I am a very tactile person and I often get seduced by objects from the natural world. And all of the seven that I chose for me possess some kind of a charm. I enjoyed holding them. I enjoyed pulling them apart and thinking about the animals and plants from which they came. So that was one, one criteria that they had a magic about them. And the other one was that they possessed certain promises, promise of possibly using nature without damaging it. And each of these objects posed that particular question. Was it possible to harvest something without destroying it? Do we inevitably destroy what we harvest and and desire? And that was something really that I set out to investigate in all of these objects. And in some cases, I, I was not disappointed at all. And I found remarkable examples of symbiosis and sustainability. In other cases, I found exactly the opposite and found stories of horror. Uh, well, maybe we ought to start with the, the ones that are a little more upbeat. What about the Eiderdown, then? So I, I'm still in love with this particular material. And, well, maybe I should just start by saying what actually happens in Iceland during the summer. So every summer, thousands of these Eiders come from, from the sea, and they, and they nest on the Icelandic shore. And what they do is they, they build their down from their nest. So they pluck their breasts, pull out this down, and build these beautiful gray nests. 
um, for their eggs. And the down is a fantastic insulator, so actually their ducklings couldn't really have a better home. And because this down is such a lightweight insulator, the Icelanders actually have found that it's very useful for for clothing and indeed bedding. And it's actually quite a highly sought-after international commodity. And what the Icelanders simply do is, instead of killing the ducks and taking their down, they remove part of the, the, the nest that the eiders have, have, have built, and then they clean the down and package it and sell it on. And the remarkable thing is that generally this is done without harming the ducks. And the Icelanders actually have this quite, quite a strong incentive to protect the ducks. So they protect them from their predators, such as Arctic foxes or, or gulls. And as a result, ducks in Iceland actually will be attracted to human settlements and they will almost behave like domesticated geese, even though they're wild. They can tolerate human presence. And in the 19th century, when, when travelers came to Iceland for the first time, they couldn't quite believe what they were saying. They, they described miraculous sights of ducks just coating the Icelandic coast. So really, it's a it's an extraordinarily strange story and one which I, I really didn't manage to find echoed in any of the other, any other stories that, I, that surround us on a daily basis. Harvesting of the cider down, it doesn't disrupt the ecosystem of the eiders? It's a really good question. The quick answer is, is, is no, it doesn't. And studies have been carried out which shows that it doesn't cause long-term disruption when, when the down is removed. I should also say that some harvesters actually wait until the ducklings have hatched before taking, taking their nests. And this, of course, doesn't cause any damage whatsoever. What the Icelanders do is they actually replace some of the nests with straw so that the ducks do actually have the, the, you know, a, a structure into which they can place their eggs. But when I asked Icelanders about this, what they tend to say is that actually Iceland has the biggest numbers of eiders in the world, that eider populations are really very, very strong and very stable. And that, for them, is the great proof that it doesn't do any damage, at least in, at least in the long run, and instead creates very strong incentives for the protection of the species. I'm curious about some of the other ones that you mentioned in the book. Are there any of those that particularly fascinated you? I mean, gosh, I'm fascinated by, by, by all of them. I think possibly the most curious object I wrote about is um, edible bird's nests, which are small nests produced by a tiny bird called the swiftlet. It's a small swift which nests in very large numbers in caves throughout South, Southeast Asia. And what these birds do is they produce their nests from their own saliva. They actually craft their nests from themselves. And retching and chewing, they extract threads of saliva from, from special glands and thread the saliva across the cave wall to produce these rather wonderful half cups. And curiously enough, in, in China for centuries, for quite some time, these nests have been considered to be great delicacies and they're actually eaten. They are boiled to produce the, the so-called bird's nest soup and are believed also to have curative properties. And for, for me, it's truly fascinating because um, in, in Borneo, for instance, men will go to great lengths to try and secure, to try and harvest these nests. They'll climb deep into caves, erecting very large poles made of bamboo or, or ironwood, and take great risks to, to, to fetch these nests. Today, however, what, what's happened is because these nests are so valuable is that people have actually started creating bird hives, attracting birds through the use of electronic birdsong, often into, into cities, and there they harvest uh, their, their nests. The birds remain in a state of semi-domestication a little bit like... So it's a very curious transition that we've seen over the last 30 years or so, and in some ways it resembles the transition from wild honey harvesting to um, harvesting honey in hives. Do the birds uh, get anything out of this deal? So in, in, in caves, when, when we think about the wild birds, they don't really get much out of the deal. Their nests are destroyed, but traditionally there was some kind of a limit on the harvest that was set by the traditional peoples from inland Borneo. So they wouldn't really 
go, go too far. Inevitably, they would cause damage to these birds, but they had an incentive to protect them in some ways because they wanted to make sure they'd have sufficient nests for the following season. But in the 1990s, there was a huge boom in demand for these nests tied to rising incomes in China, and many of these caves were ransacked. So really, there isn't much of an argument to be made that the birds have thrived as a result of harvesting. Interestingly enough, though, with this transition to hives, there the birds do get something out of it because they're provided with accommodation and sometimes protection by, by harvesters who build these fortresses, which often prevents predators from, from, from coming in. The other question, of course, that's raised is whether these birds are actually wild or, or not. And even though these birds have, have proliferated, some biologists have said, well, it's a little bit like the proliferation of, um, of farm salmon. That these birds are actually genetically distinct from the wild caves in, in birds with which they don't actually breed. So it's a very complicated story, and I don't think it really manages to capture the unique relationship that exists between Icelanders and, and ducks, for instance. In the last chapter is on guano. What you discovered about that? So for me, guano is really a material that, uh, that conjures up a great sense of contrast. Guano is the excrement of seabirds. In Quechua, it actually means uh, excrement. And it's a very powerful fertilizer. And in the 19th century, it was highly sought after because there was a great fertilizer shortage. And off the coast of, of Peru, you had hundreds of years ago enormous deposits of this stuff. And by enormous, I mean possibly 10 stories high. And people couldn't quite believe that it was bird excrement. And what had happened was that it had accumulated over thousands of years, layer upon layer, to form these, these huge hills. And in the 19th century, in the midst of the hunt for a global fertilizer, these great hills were, were leveled and all of the fertilizer was shipped off to fields in North America and, and Europe and catastrophic for the birds. The bird population absolutely plummeted and it was really a fable of, of, of a resource boom and, and destruction that, that, that takes place when we desire something too much. What interested me about guano today was actually a more recent story that in the early 19th century, the Peruvian government, together with various conservationists, decided to adopt a slightly different model of guano harvesting. They started viewing the birds as resources themselves that actually produced a renewable resource, namely their, their excrement, which could be used as, as fertilizer. And so they had an incentive to protect these birds. They nationalized the birds and organized the harvest on a rotational basis and tried to remove the guano really without destroying the golden geese that produced it. And today this harvest still exists. Guano is not a massive commodity as it was in the 19th century because we have synthetic fertilizers, of course, but it is important for the Peruvian farmers who still rely on it to this day. And for me, it was just uh, an example of contrast, how something good can perhaps come of something uh, at a very destructive and terrible time uh, in ecological history. And from something you would think uh, as, as literally waste. Yeah, yes. And I think there's something almost charming about that, that you can take something which seems to be you know, totally useless and turn it into something productive. You know, having covered all of these is a unifying theme about how we can approach our own relationship with nature, how we structure our societies in terms of using what's in nature. And That's a really big question. That's one which I don't really try to answer directly in the book because it's so perilous and difficult to, to answer. So I really rely on on the stories of these particular communities. I think really what some of the stories show is that it is possible to use um, the, the resources of, of nature around us, but it has to be done so in a very thoughtful and considerate way. And that it's hard enough when you have harvesters who are very familiar with the rhythms and the processes of, of the natural world. That's already very difficult. But when you have a market, distant consumers to add to the mix, that makes it often quite perilous. And we've seen that in the case of bird's nests that, that, that I mentioned earlier. 
But I take hope from the, the, the story of Eiderdown, actually, which is a material that is subject to great global demand, but actually it's been quite carefully uh, controlled at, at, at the level of the harvest, that the Icelanders still really do care genuinely for, for the birds, even despite the fact that this stuff reaches quite high prices. Uh, Iceland is so exceptional in, in so many ways. Many of the farms that I visited to speak with, Eiderdown farmers, have been owned you know, in the possession of the same family for, for centuries. So there's a real attachment to the land and a real understanding of it. Property rights are also very, very secure. So people have an incentive to look after the land that surrounds them and, of course, their, their, their ducks. It, it's interesting to note that actually in, in other countries where Eiderdown harvesting has been attempted, it hasn't really worked out. Russia is one such example. There were various experiments to try and harvest Eiderdown along Icelandic lines in the 1940s. But actually, it was very, very difficult because property rights weren't quite as secure and there was so much political instability that these sort of habits and practices didn't really have time to, to, to develop. You know, there are certainly you know, questions that can be asked at the level of harvest, so from the perspective of people who work very closely with nature. But actually, the, the book is really written for people, I suppose, like myself, who are probably slightly distanced from many of these communities and who nevertheless affect the lives of, of people very far away through the purchases that they make. And I think part of what the book is trying to do is to show the richness of the objects that surround us and our own relationship with them. And that actually by, by picking up an object or, or by buying it, we can have really quite a colossal effect on communities and, and organisms very far away. I'm curious if people want to learn more about you, learn about the book, uh, where can they go? So I do have a website, which is edwardposnett.com and information about the book and a little bit about me. And the book can be found in, in bookshops. We were just talking with Mr. Edward Posnett. Uh, he is the author of Strange Harvests, The Hidden Histories of Seven Natural Objects. And Mr. Posnett, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks so much. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.